0: Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.news the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. It's an endlessly fascinating subject fraud and what makes us all fall for it from the 19th century Scottish TOF Gregor McGregor, who created an imaginary South American country, Poyace, and then sold its bonds to credulous investors, to Nick Leeson, the trader whose lucky 88888 account destroyed Baring's bank. Now there's a new case to marvel at, one which outdoes most others in the sheer scale of its deception. Wirecard was a financial technology company from a country, Germany, which hadn't produced many successful ones. Unfortunately for its bosses, who were as it turned out, making up most of the numbers. They were pursued by a former colleague of ours, Dan McCrum of the FT, who ultimately exposed them despite all sorts of skullduggery and being investigated by the German financial watchdog as if he was the bad guy. Well, now he's written a book about it, Money Man, and he's here to talk about his own experiences here in Neil's Garden, where we are this afternoon, and also what makes a great financial fraud. So, Dan, welcome. Thank you
1: for having me on.
0: Not at all. It's great to have you. So, I thought we'd start by talking a bit about this particular fraud, how you first got into it, and what made you decide that it was worth pursuing?
1: So, this little company, I mean, we have to go back eight years now to the summer of 2014, and I'm chatting to a hedge fund manager who, like me, was interested in financial frauds. And he says to me, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? And I say, yeah, of course. (laughs)
0: The best I, kind
1: <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be interested in? German <laughs> yeah, yeah, I take a look and it's this funny little tech company. it's worth about four billion euros. It markets itself as a European PayPal. It does sort of fintech and payments. Its numbers don't make sense, you know it looks just a bit too good to be true. The story of the investigation, which is really the story of the book in Money Men, is the more I dig, the stranger it becomes, and it sort of takes over my entire life. And the whole thing takes years to bring it to this sort of conclusion, at which point it's become a big battle between, you know, the Financial Times and its editor, Lionel Barber, on one side, and this sort of geeky, awkward former management consultant who's sort of wrapped himself in a black turtleneck like he's some sort of Austrian cousin of Steve Jobs.
0: This is the chief executive of Black
1: Card. Yes, the chief executive, Marcus Brown. And it sort of builds to this conclusion where we're fighting off hackers private detectives, Russian mercenaries. Right.
0: So it's partly a story of their attempts to basically throw you on the literally throw you somewhere, oh, yeah, <laughs> well, if that failed.
2: Throw you into the Thames, I would think. <laughs> yeah.
0: But one question I have is, I mean, obviously with these things, often you're keen to try and t- test your theories with the, you know, you see some numbers which make no sense. The obvious thing to do is go and talk to the company and find out, can they explain them? did they ever actually attempt to engage with you? Or, or did they simply reach for the r- Russian <laughs> mafia as the first first step? So I start out with these suspicions.
1: They bought a bunch of companies all over Asia. And things about those transactions seem strange. You know, when I looked at the paperwork on the ground, it just didn't match what the company was telling its investors.
2: So at what point did you approach them and say, can you help me here? Because I don't really understand what's going on.
1: So I knock on the door. Again, this is September, October twenty fourteen. And they're a bit strange. Then I send them a bunch of questions. Can you explain these accounting things? And they sort of respond by saying, Well, this is very suspicious. A hedge fund had asked us about these. Are you in league with short sellers? Are you trying to drive the share price down for their benefit? There was
2: no attempt to actually to address any of the questions. This was just a sort of smokescreen.
1: Well I mean they did send us answers later, but that first reaction was just very unusual. And it's like, oh, we've hit a nerve here. And again, the thing you see with frauds, I mean, we can talk about the numbers and stuff like that, but really what you're looking for is lies. There's this great phrase which American short sellers use. There's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. And so... <laughs> very good. And so, um, so I'm trying to, like, catch the company in a lie, because then you can make a big deal about it. I have an interview, and the great fun thing about being a journalist, I mean, as you both know, is you get to ask some very rude questions of people. You know, I ask this guy straight out, are you hiding something? You know, is there accounting fraud happening here? And the weird thing was, he sort of gave an angry answer in the sense of his words. Like, that's bullshit. Who's telling you this sort of thing? But he used a few notable techniques of liars. You know, why would I do these things? Mm. You know, what about my reputation? It would make no sense for me to do them.
2: Answering a different question.
1: Yes. Yeah, what well, answering with a question yeah. and also invoking outside authority, you know, we have 17 analysts who think we're worth buying. We have one of the world's most reputable accounting firms, Ernst and Young, signing off on the accounts. Who are you to doubt us?
0: But the point is that while this was all going on, from your first instinct to quite late on in the day, the company's value, which started, and you said, at four billion, had gone up to about 20 to 25. So there were lots and lots of people betting in the opposite direction. Did that make you wonder? I mean, you said. The guy says, well, we've got Ernst, Ernst and Young on our side and and a load of analysts and so forth. Did you ever think, shit, well, maybe I don't understand it.
1: So you have these moments where you're like, am I missing something? Yeah. The thing is, I never really got a good answer from the company.
0: Right, that's a key point. They couldn't explain yeah. the missing bits in your mind.
1: And sort of when I would zero in on, on things, you know, the answer would keep changing. Yeah. You'd say, okay, answer this question. They go, here's X. And you say, well... X doesn't make sense. Mm. And they go, Ah, oh, sorry. Actually we mean Y. <laughs> and, okay. and so you sort well, of get that Z. sense like, yeah, you know, yeah. normal businesses can explain how their business works. It's generally not that complicated.
0: But what about EY? I mean, what the hell I mean somehow they allowed themselves to be spun along for years? So
1: Ernst and Young have done an absolutely <laughs> terrible, negligent job for ten years and are rightly being sued. And I think some of the guys involved are That's allegedly criminal... negligent. No, no, they were obviously <laughs> negligent. I'm very happy to say okay. that they were, we're completely we're, negligent. I don't we'll be, think they have much. We'll, be getting, <laughs> we'll
0: be getting your, the, the, your disclaimer.
1: Yeah, you'll be hearing from <laughs> shillings again. The, the question is whether they are criminally negligent, you know, wow. willfully negligent, or they were just incredibly stupid. And I do, as a rule, subscribe to the incompetence theory of humanity rather than right. any darker sort of interpretation. What I think happens is when you work on a big complex audit like that, you sort of become convinced that you really understand it. Yeah. So every time you sign off on one little thing, you sort of become committed to it. Yeah. It's now a question of reputation. Why you signed off in it before, why aren't you doing it now? So... That's sort of the best that I've got, that they found themselves in a place where they sort of rationalised what was happening around them?
0: They rationalised no one having the right piece of paper to hand and thought it's just what happens with a startup. Nobody really has the right piece of paper to hand.
1: It is a
2: pretty arcane area, all this business about payments and who's supporting what. I mean, it's not something which is easily grasped
1: by somebody on the outside. Do you think you understand it pretty well now? Moderately. But I think, you know, the big question is, how do you get away with the fraud, right? And the way they did it was by wrapping themselves in complexity.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So fundamentally, Good their business gun. was quite
1: simple. Yeah. You have a website, you sell floppy hats. I'm in no way being inspired by Neil's uh, fetching attire today. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I, strangely, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I need protection
1: <laughs> from the sun.
0: <laughs>
1: and so you have to take payment from your customers. And Wirecard was one of the companies which will help you take credit and debit cards. And there are loads of businesses which do that. But Wirecard dressed it up as it was doing all these clever things around it with software and made its accounts very complicated because it also owned a bank. And so whenever it was questioned, it would do two things. It would say, you just don't understand. It's all very complicated. Let us help you. And then the other thing it did, if that didn't work, was it called any critic basically a stock market manipulator. Yeah. And kind of the surprising thing is both of those strategies worked very effectively. Well, well the, second, the
0: second one is very reminiscent of the slaps where you basically take out your critic by trying to muzzle them legally or, in their case, rather brilliantly, by getting the financial regulator to step in and investigate what the FT was up to, which, of course, must have been extremely alarming for everyone at the paper.
1: What's incredible about the Wirecard situation is how they use every single one of these tactics. And so as it escalates, you know, they start off with angry lawyers' letters. McCrum's an idiot, and by the way, he's probably corrupt. The FT should investigate him. Yeah. And that actually worked. There was a big Reuters investigation in 2015, which I talk about, where um, Reuters discover what's effectively you know, a big money laundering operation run through Consett County Durham. Thousands of companies set up, and the people who are supposedly running them, they've been found in the pub and paid 50 quid to put their name to it. Like, yeah. the whole thing stinks. Yeah, yeah. Reuters exposes the whole thing, but at the last moment under legal pressure, takes Wirecard's name out of the story. Oh, really? So, like, it causes headlines on the BBC all day. It's discussed in Parliament. What are the problems with regulation? And nobody mentions Wirecard. Nobody mentions Wirecard. That's really bizarre. And what this creates over time is this sense that, you know, the investors look at it and say, well, there's all this mud been thrown at Wirecard. None of it's stuck. So there can't be anything to it, right? You know, the regulator has in Germany has investigated. The critics are wirecard, not the company.
0: So they do all these things which make absolute sense if you're running a fraud. You make everything unbelievably complicated. You sow in the minds of the investors the fact that if there is a thing you can't talk to them about, it's really in their interest not to know it because they're operating cleverly in the grey frontiers of the financial universe or whatever it is. And yet when it finally comes out, of course, it's all incredibly simple. Basically, the the final exposure is essentially that they're claiming, as often so often happens at the ends of one of these great stock market frauds, they're pinned down to explain some cash which they don't actually have. This is all incredibly reminiscent of a, of a scandal like 20 years ago with Parmalat, where exactly the same thing happened. In their case, they looted the company for years, the family that owned an Italian cheese company, which did remarkably well for the cheese business. Basically, they looted it for years, bought football clubs and so forth. And and in the end, it all came down to whether there really was about $4 billion sitting in some bank in the Cayman Islands. In the end, of course, it was shown not to exist because when finally the accountants went and looked for it, they couldn't find it, which is sort of what happened here. So you you just think it's amazing how the same scenario played out. 20 years later, why didn't someone go, oh, maybe this is the Parmalat thing. Maybe we need to go and ask more carefully if the money really exists.
1: I mean, I remember Parmalat. I was working at Citigroup in London at the time. The bank had been caught up in and embarrassed in Parmalat in some way. I think with some very embarrassing names for uh, special right. purpose vehicles and things, which in retrospect you look at and yeah. go... Yeah, I think they were giving us a clue there. But the kind of the Wizard of Oz moment in the Wirecard story is when the heat on it is really rising and everybody wants to know, right, where's all the cash? Because cash is king. And so the explanation is we have two billion euros in bank accounts in the Philippines.
0: which The obvious place. Obvious place. The way way one (laughs) does, yes. You know,
1: a European financial institution. And this is the cunning thing that they've done is they said we have this special structure where actually the bank accounts aren't in our name. Ah. Because we're involved in our payments processing business, and it's all very complicated. Yeah. They're in special accounts overseen by a lawyer. This is pretty desperate stuff, isn't it, at this point?
0: <laughs> That's the question I have, which is, do you, I mean, you've obviously spent probably more time than anyone else on the planet, apart from Braun and their associates, thinking about what they were up to. So how does it play out that they get away with it? Because in all these things, there's always a moment where there's no money and everyone wants the money. Do you think they could have got away with it? I really do think they could have got away with it because they had got away with it for so long. But how do they get out? How do they sell the company or exit or just... So they they just run off with a pile of cash and hope no one follows. They were seriously considering
1: trying to buy Germany's biggest bank, Deutsche Bank. Okay.
2: Mind you, a bank entirely <laughs> immersed in all sorts of terrible problems. Well, <laughs> so that sounds like exactly a frying pan into
0: absolutely. the fire solution. So <laughs> I mean because
1: yeah, Deutsche Bank has such a terrible reputation. It's raised billions, it keeps wasting it. It's you know, there's so many scandals. Hmm. So they could have gone in there and you look at what's happened in the last couple of years to the meme stocks. Yeah. You know, Wirecard was the most shorted stock in Europe. So it could have had the same, like, GameStop effect where, haha, let's screw the hedge funds. Its share price would have gone to the moon. It could have bought Deutsche Bank and then in the gigantic mess, mess <laughs> made everything hidden go away. Hidden mm. Hidden it all away, blamed it on someone else, you know, or at least dragged it out for another five years. I
2: was going to say, it's just buys time, doesn't it? Because in the end, you know, if there's no money, there's no money.
1: I think they could have got away with it like that, but
0: also you, that's you, a pretty high bar to say the way we'll exit from our shonky little German payments companies to buy the country's largest bank mm. and put it all through the washing machine. But it,
2: it was very cheap so it's at the possible.
0: time. Possible, yeah. I suppose. I mean, but, but what are your other ways? You
1: can find a big tech company like Hewlett Packard to buy you. That's uh, one well way. Well, now we're straying into very dangerous territory. That's Beyond the scope of this volume, I think.
0: But what you're describing is once again. Makes you think, why does this stuff come round and round and round? And is there, you and I, to some extent, have both, and Neil, no, no it's written stories. It's a me. YOY story saying, why on earth has anyone fallen for this sort of thing again? But yeah. did you form any conclusions about why do these scams, I mean, they have certain superficial differences. You know, there's a payment system and internet and a lot of bollocks about the cashless economy. But at the end of the day, it's the same as Parmalat, but it's basically just a load of made-up numbers. Do you have any views on why are frauds so persistent? I mean, they come around a big one every so often just to
1: remind us yeah. that they're out there, don't they? You know, we don't see them mm. every day. And I think that's part of the reason. If you saw frauds every day, you'd be looking for them every day because you would expect to get ripped off. But because we live in a high-trust society, you just don't. You know, it would be a waste of time to check everything. Yeah,
2: I think that's a very good point. And, of course, n- yeah, the vast majority of them are pretty trivial in the scale of things. And the people who've lost the money or the institutions have lost the money would just rather draw a line under it and move on. You know, they often measured in millions of pounds rather than billions.
0: Well, it's a bit like those things. What are they called? Those letters you get on the Internet which say things like, I'm an official in the Nigerian Central Bank and give me your bank account details and I will share with you the fruits of my theft. And, of course, periodically people fall for that. And the police say, well, of course, no one ever comes to us because they're too embarrassed once they've lost their 30 grand to admit that they've fallen for such a transparent, <laughs> transparent and disastrous scam. <laughs> so in that sense, you could see. I, but I agree with you. I think it is a lot to do with that. I think there is a sort of idea that there's a value in a high-trust society in not checking everything because yeah. actually it stops things getting done. And mm. if the price is that you, periodically sort of Senor Pansy of Parmalat comes along or Marcus Braun of Wirecard and uh, rips you off well that's just the price periodically. Each
1: fraud is inventive in its own way because what you do is you sort of you're making something which looks as close as possible to a normal set of transactions or normal set of circumstances and you design it for what people are looking for so one of my favorite scams is the great salad oil con.
0: Yeah, my uh, favorite the salad too. oil swindle. Yes, yes, that's the one. Great. I think it
1: was the 70s, right? Where yeah. Yeah, a yeah. guy seemingly starts to try and corner like the world supply for salad oil. Yeah, vegetable oil, yeah. And he has these tanks in New Jersey, I think. Yeah. And what they do is um, every so often someone will come along and check them by sort of unscrewing the lid at the top and dipping <laughs> a stick, yeah. a dipstick, to see how, to see how deep is. the oil is. Yeah. And so what he does is he fills the tanks with seawater and then creates a sort of like a deep bucket around the entrance, which has got actual oil in it. So when they dip it in, it yeah. seems like they're sort full of, of oil. A, a tube that
2: yes, was under, immediately underneath the point where you tested, so you could test it, and it would all be oil yes. all the way down. And when yes, you looked, exactly. of course, yeah. the
0: salad oil was floating on top of the seawater.
2: It was a, a quite imaginative fraud, I think.
0: But that had that had one other little wrinkle, which was that the reason it was all financed by a bank called American Express. And American Express basically wanted to get into the corporate lending business. So when this clown came along with his tanks of salad oil, instead of doing any checks, they basically just wrote the check (laughs) and lost a lot of money. But do you have, uh, I wanted finally to end on on sort of two things. One is favourite frauds. Is that your favourite fraud? That is definitely one of my favorite frauds. One of my old school
1: favorites is Count Lustig. I think it was in the 1920s in Paris. Okay. And he's one of your, you know, the old school fraudsters who faked letters from the government saying that he had a contract to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap. (laughs) And he persuaded... That's wonderfully imaginative, I have to say. And he persuaded two different scrap metal merchants that Buy it y- from him. to pay him very large amounts of money yeah. in expectation that they would then get the contract from the French government to basically to melt down the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it's just that wonderful example of how greed blinds you to, um, you know, mm. to like what is obviously nonsensical.
0: Which uh, is also obviously runs through all your Wirecard story. But what about tips for spotting fraud? What's a tell for a for a sleuth like you, where your nostrils dilate and you start to think there's, there's something fishy here?
1: You know, there are technical things like um, our trade receivables, which is, you know, sales where the money hasn't arrived yet, yeah. growing faster yeah. than actual sales. yeah, Because that tells you they're booking something which maybe isn't a real sale. So that's like a technical one. But really, I look for two things. I look for good sources who do all the hard work of looking for all these okay. and then tell me about so them you, go, you, you know that's the job managers. of a journalist you're a hedge fund manager yeah. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> you know, i'm not i'm not <laughs> <All> trying to <laughs> cast the other myself one. <laughs> and the other one is just look for a lie right you know if the company is lying about one thing they're going to be lying about other things that was a long time in finance
2: with jonathan ford and neil collins editing and production is by nick hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next
0: week.